0: We're going to say that every single time. So we'll just stick to Mark for short, even though we know that much of his accounts were eyewitness uh, as recorded from what Peter shared with him. Now Mark was writing his account specifically for a Gentile audience in general and a Roman, uh, Roman people in particular. And now one of the things that Mark knew is that the Roman people specifically loved action. They were an action-oriented people. So a modern comparison would be, you know, who loves a good action movie? Anyone going to put up their hands? Yeah, so you who put up your hands up there, you're sort of like the Romans. You love action. You know, a long, boring drama, that's not your speed. You love an action movie. Well, that was the Roman people. They were the action movie junkies of their time. The only slight difference being that rather than watching movies, they watched their action often in bloody spectacles, such as in the Roman Colosseum or in other gladiator arenas that were dotted throughout the empire. And so Mark, he, knowing his audience, knows that they're not going to want a long, lengthy preamble. He jumps right into the action. And in Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, he boldly declares "Hit this statement that he's now going to spend the rest of the book proving, and his bold declaration is this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, such an audacious claim right out of the gate that this man he was going to be speaking of, Jesus Christ, is none other than the Son of God. Now, that bold claim would immediately have caught the Roman reader's attention. And so they would want to see compelling evidence to back up such a bold claim. And so for the next 16 chapters, Mark proceeds to pack in more of the miracles of Jesus per chapter than any of the other gospel accounts. In fact, the weight of of miracle to teaching is heavily skewed towards the miracles and the actions of Jesus. And the reason principally Mark does this is to back up the initial claim that the Romans would have wanted to see divine miracles performed to back up that this man is in fact who he claims that he is, the Son of God. And so, most of you will already know that the word gospel means essentially good news. It comes from the Greek euangelion, which is also where we get evangelical from, or evangelism. And so this gospel, good news, this is what he has come to proclaim. That Jesus is the Son of God. He has come to earth to save us. And so a claim this monumental to the Roman mind would have needed a lot of specific criteria to back up this claim. And one of them being that if someone as important as the Son of God has really and truly come to earth, he could not simply have just shown up on earth unannounced. This is far too big of a deal for him to just suddenly saunter onto the scene. There would have need to be a lot of things that happen first. And so to the Roman mind, just as for any earthly king the Son of God would have needed a herald. That is, someone to go ahead of him to clear the way, to smooth the path, and then finally to announce his triumphant arrival to the people. Now, while this idea of a, a herald may be a bit foreign to our 21st century years, for Mark's Roman audience, it would not have been foreign at all. Indeed, for the Romans... This was a part of their daily life, almost, that that it was just understood that when someone important, like a king, or especially an emperor, was going anywhere, it was customary, in fact, it was expected, that they would send an entourage ahead, a herald specifically, who would go ahead of whatever the path was that the emperor was taking to tell the local populations, get ready, clean things up, level the way, smooth the roads. In fact, there's a number of instances where they even had them build bridges and make new roads because the emperor wanted to take a specific route. So he's like, no, I'm not going out of the way there. I want to go this way, but there's no road. We'll build you a road. We will smooth the path. We will build a bridge for the emperor. And so this was something that was very clear in the Romans' mind. And then, of course, the herald would say, and last but certainly not least, have that welcoming party ready, that when he shows up, you will receive him with all the pomp and ceremony befitting of a king or of an emperor. And so Mark begins his account by immediately introducing this herald, this messenger who goes before the Son of God. Of course, we know that he was none other than John the Baptist, Now John's own arrival on the scene was also not just something that came out of the blue or he walked onto the stage out of nowhere. In fact, John also had a herald. And the original herald of John the Baptist's arrival came centuries earlier. The Old Testament prophets specifically. And in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, Mark quotes a combination of the prophet Malachi and Isaiah to confirm John's credentials as that herald. And he writes and he quotes from Malachi and Isaiah saying, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so here we see that John fulfilled this twofold prophecy of being both the herald of the son of god as well as the trailblazer the one whose voice calling in the wilderness would prepare the way for jesus arrival as that king the messiah the son of god now in the year 1775 the american frontier was still wild and unsettled anywhere west of the appalachian mountains But with more and more European settlers arriving on the coast of America all the time, both the appetite and the need was there to make a way that those settlers could safely travel over the mountains, through the wilderness, and into the wide-open lands beyond, where they could settle and build a new life for themselves. So Daniel Boone, the famed frontiersman, he set himself to this difficult and dangerous task of blazing a trail through a notch in the Appalachian Mountains that became known as the Cumberland Gap. Now, Daniel Boone began his work alone, but soon as he started this very difficult job, he recruited a group of 30 expert woodsmen who helped him lay out and then trailblaze this 200-mile-long route, which, which later became known simply as the Wilderness Trail. Now, that Wilderness Trail then served as the primary pathway into the western United States for well over 300,000 settlers who would follow it, making the way possible for the establishment of the first permanent settlements in what became known as Kentucky, which later led to Kentucky becoming the 15th U.S. state in the Union. Now, just as Daniel Boone was this trailblazer, the one who cleared this pathway, for those 300,000 settlers to follow. Without which they could not have found a new life on the frontier. So too John the Baptist was the trailblazer, the one who cleared the way for the people of Israel to follow his pathway to find a new life in their long-awaited Messiah. However, unlike Daniel Boone, John the Baptist trailblazing was not clearing a physical pathway. He was not clearing one through wilderness or over mountains, but instead John was clearing a spiritual pathway through the wilderness. But that wilderness was the wilderness of sin and evil that was embedded deep within people's hearts and lives. For as verse 4 tells us, and so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So here we see that John is dealing with people's hearts. He's he's dealing with the, the deeply rooted, embedded sins in the hearts and lives of the people. And so this is where he is clearing the pathway, so that people's hearts were ready and prepared, so that when Jesus, their king, arrived, their hearts would be properly cleaned up and eager to receive him. Now it's also important to remember that from the last Old Testament prophet, Malachi, which, as you may know, is the last book in the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi, nearly 400 years passes between Malachi and the arrival of John the Baptist on the scene. Nearly 400 years passes by in which the nation of Israel has not received a direct word from God. 400 years of silence, as it's known. So when John finally arrived on the scene, his powerful voice shattered a four-century-long silence. And so even though his pulpit was not in a church building or not at the temple, his pulpit was way out in the wilderness along the banks of the Jordan River, a long ways from the urban center of Jerusalem. And yet even though it was out there in the boonies, the Jewish people swarmed to him like moths to a yard light. When the word spread that this long-awaited prophet had finally arrived, there was no stopping the people, and they flocked to him. Mark 1 verse 5 describes the scene. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, I've often sort of overlooked how big a deal John the Baptist really was, but when we read this verse straightforward. I want you to take note that Mark says the whole Judean countryside. He doesn't say most of it. He says the whole. Then he says all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Not not just the majority. He says the words the whole and all. So even if we factor in some literary hyperbole, you know, that he was maybe exaggerating or embellishing slightly to make the point— Even if we factor that in, that not literally every single person in all of Jerusalem went out to John the Baptist, certainly not the cripples, right? They wouldn't have been able to walk out there. But still, he is making the very strong point that everyone who could was going out to John the Baptist. Everyone who who just, you know, had a way to get there, even if that was just walking for days, they were doing it. John was a big deal. The vast majority of people will have heard his preaching and, yes, were baptized by him or his disciples for the repentance of their sins. So now we've got to ask the question, what was it specifically about John that made people so certain that he was a genuine prophet of God and that even further that he fulfilled the prophecies of Malachi and Isaiah and that he was not just some wild imposter Well, for this, there was the matter of John's wilderness life, coupled together with his physical appearance. Now, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 6, listen to how Mark describes John the Baptist. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, additionally, from Luke's gospel, we also know that John took a Nazarite vow To never drink anything fermented or to cut his hair. So when we add these descriptions together, you can picture John the Baptist as something of a, a cross between this wild mountain man with just hair going in all directions, a big bushy beard, and a sasquatch. Right? Like this is this is the cross we're looking at here. A man who literally lived his life in the wilderness is wearing camel skins, a leather belt hair in all directions, his skin is dark and tanned from the elements because that's where he lived. Uh, Maybe he had a cave for a home, but whatever it was, John the Baptist is a mountain man in every possible sense of the word. Now, what does this wild appearance have to do with confirming that he was, in fact, the real deal, that he was a genuine prophet of God? Well, both the prophecies of Malachi... And also the angel Gabriel said that the forerunner of Jesus would come specifically in the power and spirit of Elijah. In fact, Malachi ends his prophecy by saying that this forerunner who's coming would come as Elijah had come. So there's this direct comparison between John the Baptist, the forerunner, and Elijah. And so what do we know about Elijah? Well, we know that he also spent a great deal of his life living in the wilderness. And in 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 7 and 8, we are actually given a physical description of the prophet Elijah. Listen to this. The king asked them, and this is King Ahab. The king asked them, What kind of a man was it who came to meet you and told you all this? And they replied to him, He had a garment of hair, And had a leather belt around his waist, and the king said that was Elijah the Tishbite. And so here we see that the physical description of Elijah matches almost perfectly with that of John the Baptist, that he too was wearing a garment made out of hair, so an animal skin, and a leather belt around his waist, and yes, he too is a wild mountain man in appearance. And so when we put this together. That the people of Israel, they heard about John the Baptist. Then they went out and they saw this wild-looking mountain man dressed in animal skins with a leather belt around his waist. And then on top of that, he's living off a diet of locusts and wild honey. And I love the one children's video where we we see them take, you know, locusts, which is kind of like a grasshopper, and the wild honey was because he dipped the grasshoppers in the wild honey, right? Like, mmm, tasty, right? You ever tried that, Anyone? Anyone want to admit that they've eaten a grasshopper? I once ate a grasshopper leg. I really did. I, I'll admit it. I did it. I didn't have the honey, though. It tasted terrible. I spit it back out. So I thought if John the Baptist could eat them, why can't I, right? So but this is what he's living off of. And so they're, they're matching the description, what they know about Elijah, the prophecies. Then they're coming out, and they're seeing this man who seems to fit it to a T. The visuals are all correct. But then here's the final clincher. Just as Elijah was a prophet who confronted the sin of Israel, remember their great sin. They had turned to Baal. And he was the man who stood against them and, and called them out. And there's the, you know, we looked at it last uh, two weeks back the showdown on Mount Carmel and the fire from heaven and everything that was uh, involved with confronting the people in their sin. This is exactly what John the Baptist did. He didn't come to tell them that, oh, you know, God's happy with you, you're doing everything great. No, he came and confronted them in their sin. You are sinners. That was his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, John's message was simple, but it was powerful. Again and again, he confronted the people in their sin. And when even the Pharisees came out to see, like, who is this guy? Is he the real deal? He confronted them in their sin, and he called them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to escape the judgment to come? So John the Baptist was not about sugarcoating anything. He came and confronted the nation in their sin with the message of repentance, And so as the people heard this powerful preaching, it was as though they were hearing Elijah himself, and the result was that people responded in droves. They confessed their sins. They repented, and they were baptized by John in the Jordan River. But even though John the Baptist was a big deal to the people, we see that John never let any of this fame go to his head. For you see, if he had claimed to be the Messiah... Right then and there, if he had said, I'm the one you're looking for, many of the people would have believed him. For in fact, they even asked him if he was the long-awaited Messiah. But John gave the good confession that, no, I am not the Christ. And then they asked him, are you one of the other prophets? or, Or who are you? And again and again he said, no, I am not them. And then he invoked the prophecy saying, I am the voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the path for the Lord. You see, John knew that he was but the humble trailblazer for the great Messiah yet to come. And in Mark 1, verse 7, it tells us this. This was John's message. After me will come more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, in that time and in that culture, It was the job of the lowliest slave to stoop down and untie the leather thongs of his master's sandals. The lowest job, followed by washing his master's feet. But John claimed that the one who was coming, greater than him, that when he arrived, he wasn't even worthy to do the job of the lowest slave for the great master yet to come. Not even worthy to untie his sandals. So for John... All of this fame, all of the people flocking to him, none of it meant anything to him because he knew his role, he knew his place, and he was ready and willing to humbly step aside and give all the honor and the glory and the spotlight onto Jesus the very moment he arrived. And that's exactly what John did. For in John chapter 1 and verse 29, we read, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he declared, Behold, the Lamb of God! who takes away the sins of the world. John knew that his job was to be the trailblazer for Jesus. That was his role, to announce his arrival, to point to him when he came. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then, once his job was done, he was ready and prepared to humbly exit stage left and allow Jesus to take center stage and have all the spotlight rightly focused on him. Now, there are many lessons that we can learn from the life and ministry of John the Baptist. Many lessons that we would do well to apply to each one of our own lives. But out of all of them, I'll go over some of them quickly. There is his singular dedication to the Lord's glory. That was the only thing John cared about. There was his willingness to forsake all earthly pleasures and go and live in the wilderness, in fact, in order to fulfill his God-given mission. Then there was his courage to confront the people's sin. He was not afraid, and we see that courage played out later on when he when he confronts the king, and we see ultimately he loses his head for it. But his courage is incredible. Then we see that there is his humble dependency on God's power to transform lives. John knew that he couldn't change anyone. He knew that yes, he gave a baptism unto repentance in the water, but the one who is coming. He was the one who was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's where the real transformation was going to come, and John knew that. His job was just to prepare people for that day yet to come. And then finally, we see that there is his complete humility and humbleness. That the moment Jesus arrived, he pointed him out, and and he just stepped to the side. He said, "He uh, he must increase, I must decrease. And he got out of the way. Jesus was the one who received all the glory. So there's all of these lessons and more that we could glean from John's life. But this morning there is one primary lesson that I want to focus our attention on today, and it is this. Just as John was called to be a trailblazer for Jesus, to prepare the way that people could be in the right place in their hearts and minds to receive him, Just as John was called to be a trailblazer for Jesus, we too, you and I, are likewise called to be trailblazers for Jesus. Now just to be clear, this does not mean that we're called to dress up in animal skins or never cut our hair or live off of a diet of locusts and honey, though if you want to try any of those things, go right ahead. But what this does mean is that like John you have some role to play. It might be a large role in some instances, or it might be a relatively small role. But you have a role to play in helping blaze the trail and prepare the way for someone to be ready and prepared to receive King Jesus and to put their faith in him as their Savior and as their Lord now, the, sim- the simple truth is I-, I would be so bold as to say that for every last one of us present here this morning, every last one of us, there was someone in our lives who blazed the trail for us. Someone did that for us. Someone did that for you. And as we've already given tribute this morning, for a lot of us, that someone was our mother, as it was for me. Someone had to go before us to prepare us so that when that gospel message came, the conditions were right, the soil was right, that that seed of faith could land on good soil. And that then watered by the Holy Spirit does that that work that only the Spirit can do. And we are born again as we repent of our sins and we put our trust, we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Someone went before us. You know, the the options are almost limitless of who those people could be. It may have been a parent, a grandparent, a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a youth leader, a camp counselor, a sibling, or even just a close friend. But whoever it was, you had at least one person in your life who God used in that role of John the Baptist to prepare that way, to blaze that trail for you. And so for all of us that know Jesus as the Lamb of God, Who takes away not only the sin of the whole world but takes away my sin that's the one that really matters that's the one that makes it personal he takes away the sin of the whole world but your name is included in that your sin is included in that he takes away your sin and mine and he's the only one who can do it and so for all of us that know him that way we should like john be pointing him out to others there's an old-time Methodist evangelist named Sam Jones. And Sam Jones used to tell a story from the time when the great paddle wheel riverboats would be sailing up and down the Mississippi River. And, and as one would be headed south and the other would be headed north, and they would they would have to very carefully navigate as they passed by each other. And at that time, it was just the common thing to do that as those great riverboats would pass by each other, the passengers on each side of the riverboats would gather out on the rails up on the decks and they would wave to the passengers in the other boat and, and look and see if there's maybe someone that they recognized. Well, one day as this was happening, the two wheel boats were passing by each other. There was a fireman whose job was to feed the boiler on one of the 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 boats. And this fireman who who fed the boiler, he ran out onto the deck. He pointed to the other boat And he loudly exclaimed, shouting at the top of his lungs, Look, look, there's the captain, the finest captain on the Mississippi. And everyone turns and looks at this guy, all covered in soot from feeding the boiler. And there, a very well-dressed, distinguished-looking gentleman turned to this grimy-looking figure and indignantly said, What gives you the right to say that he's the finest captain? How would you know? And the fireman replied, well, last year I was on the deck of this very boat. A storm blew up. I fell overboard, and you see, I can't swim. I was crying out, Help me! Help me! And the captain himself jumped over the side of the boat, into the water. He swam to me, and he saved my life. And ever since he saved me, every time I see him, I just love to point him out to others. There he is, the finest captain on the the Mississippi. Now let me just ask you two questions. Question number one. Just as that riverboat captain saved that man from drowning in the river, has Jesus saved you from drowning in your sins? Has he? For if not, I urge you right now to repent of your sins and call out to him, help me, save me. Because Jesus is the only one who can help you with this. He is the only one qualified to save you from your sins. No one else. I can't do it and you can't save yourself. Just as certainly as that man could not save himself from drowning in the river. He couldn't do it. Someone else had to jump in and save him. Jesus is the only one. So let me urge you this morning. Repent. Turn from your sins. Call out to Jesus. For as the word tells us, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now on to the second question. Question number two. If you have already called out to Jesus, if you have already repented of your sins and placed your faith in him, if you are saved, then like the man who was rescued by the riverboat captain, like that grimy soot-covered fireman, do you just love to point him out to others and say, look, there he is. The Lamb of God, the man who saved my soul. There he is. Do you love to point him out to others? Now, of course, I already recognize that asking a question like that, I asked it of myself this week. And I, and I noticed something very strange in myself. The, ver- the very first response was one from my weak flesh, I believe. And my weak flesh resisted this right desire that my spirit says, yes, I want to point Jesus out to others. I want to shout his fame and say, he saved me. But there's something else inside of me that just wants to shrink back in fear. Fear of what? I don't know. Being embarrassed. Maybe somehow being put to shame for making a scene, just as that distinguished gentleman said to the fireman, what are you doing making this scene? What do you know of this man? But so what? So what? If life and death, if salvation and judgment, if heaven and hell are truly at stake, I had to preach it to myself and now I'll preach it to you. Put down your weak flesh. Yield yourself to the spirit who is in you. Lift up your weak hand and point to Jesus. Say, there he is. Look. He's the one who can save you. I can't do it, but he saved me, and he can save you too, my friend. Resolve within yourself today to say along with the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 and verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Now for myself, I am very blessed to be able to say that God gave me more than just one person who pointed my way towards Jesus. He used several people in my life to blaze that trail. As I said earlier, the very first of those trailblazers was my own mother. And with this being Mother's Day, I think it's only fitting to acknowledge that some of the greatest evangelists that God has placed on this earth do not have the official titles of evangelist or pastor or missionary, but they bear that simple catch-all three-letter title spelled simply M-O-M, MOM. So, for all of the mums out there today, especially those who still have young children at home, I want to just encourage you with this simple truth. You don't have to go anywhere to find your primary mission field. It's located right under your own roof. It's your own children. For by God's own design, no one is more perfectly suited and situated to help blaze the trail for your child to enter into a personal relationship with the Lord than you are. And this was true even for John the Baptist himself. From the Gospel of Luke, we read about Elizabeth, John's mother, and how she played a vital role in John's life. Now, you'll likely recall that Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, they were barren, they were childless, and yes, they were old. When finally the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah, he announced that they would have a son, And Zechariah initially doubted God's word, was struck mute for it. And we see that Elizabeth never, however, she never expressed a shred of doubt. For after she had conceived, we read her words in Luke 1.25, The Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. And then in verse 42, we read that upon meeting Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus, Elizabeth felt John leap within her, and she was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she prophetically exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you shall bear. And so here we see that for John the Baptist, it was truly like mother, like son. For just as his mother, filled with the Spirit, testified and pointed towards Jesus as Lord John would do the same. And there can be no doubt that both Elizabeth and Zechariah raised John up before the Lord, both to know him and to serve him. For Luke chapter 1 and verse 80 concludes with, And the child, that is John, grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly in Israel. As the great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, Fathers and mothers are the most natural agents for God to use in the salvation of their children. I am sure that in my early youth, no teaching ever made such an impression upon my mind as the instruction of my mother. Now even so, not even the godliest of mothers can guarantee that all her children will put their faith in Christ and follow him. They cannot guarantee that. But one thing that a godly mother can guarantee is that her loving influence and her prayers will doggedly follow her children all of their days. And so it was for a godly 5th century mother named Monica and her son Augustine. For despite her dedicated instruction, Augustine rejected his mother's faith. He grew up to live an entirely pagan life. If there was a sin to be committed, he found a way to commit it. Yet Monica persisted in praying for her son that he would yet give his life to Christ and into his service. But year after year, Augustine persisted in his sins. But Monica persisted as well. She prayed, she fasted, she wept over her son's wayward ways, which led her one day to an unnamed bishop where she poured out her heart to him in her sorrow with many tears. And finally the bishop consoled her simply by saying, It is inconceivable that a son of tears like yours should perish. And her perseverance finally paid off. Seventeen years of resistance later, one day Augustine sat with a friend on a bench, weeping over the sorry state of his life. It was at that very moment that he heard a child singing a song coming from somewhere in a neighboring house. The child was singing over and over again. Pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. Well, that book lying next to him was, of course, none other than a Bible. And so he picked it up and he read it. And the very words that he read immediately penetrated his heart, convicted him of his sins. And that very day he repented, he placed his faith in Jesus, and he committed the rest of his life into his service. And Augustine did just that. He eventually became a church bishop And through his writings, he became one of the most influential biblical theologians of all time. Such is the unique way that God uses a godly mother and her persistent prayers to help blaze the trail and clear the way for her children to come to him, even when they are grown adults. And so today, whether you are a mother or a father, a grandpa or a grandma, brother or sister, friend or neighbor, whatever your position or title may be, May we each leave here today with this truth firmly fixed in our hearts and in our minds that like John the Baptist, we are each uniquely placed right where we are to be a trailblazer for Jesus, for someone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for John the Baptist. We thank you and give uh, just incredible gratitude lord that as you said that amongst the prophets there was no one greater than he and we thank you for his single-minded devotion to you to your glory and the way that he served you so boldly and yet when the time was right to just step aside and to give you center stage and to say all glory belong to you and rightfully so for you are worthy of all glory honor and praise we thank you lord this morning each one personally we can put a name in there or names of those who helped blaze the trail for us, for me. And I thank you. So Lord, I humbly once more commit myself. And Lord, on behalf of this congregation, we commit ourselves that as you would place each one of us, that we are trailblazers for you, for someone. Lord, maybe the role may not seem that large or great, but if there is a role to be played that you would have us play help straighten that pathway that someone could walk into that relationship with you through repentance and faith. May we play it well with the power you give us. Give us boldness to do that, Lord, and the courage we require. And so we ask, Lord, this blessing on your church and on your people to the benefit of others who are not yet here because they have yet to place their faith in you. But we pray that that day will come. And so may we humbly do our part. We commit ourselves to this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.